get to it i'm reverend ryan a deacon in the anglican church in north america and i'm in the process of becoming a priest but enough about me let's get to why we're actually here merry christmas this is the christmas episode just so happens that it's released on christmas day it is not christmas at the time of recording this but merry christmas So, we are covering Jonah 1 through 2 today, but in a slightly different way. We're asking ourselves, okay, this is the end of Act Act 1, the first act. What exactly is going on here? What was the point of the first act? What is the author asking us to consider in this first act? Well, let's look at a couple things. I guess, actually, the main thing I want to focus on today is how is the author presenting Jonah? And how is the author presenting the Ninevites and the sailors? There's an upside-down worldview here. It's an upside-down view. It's totally, it doesn't make any sense. Jonah's being portrayed as the sinner, effectively. Whereas everybody else in the book is being portrayed as obedient. And I mean everybody, and not just everybody, everything. I talked about this in the first podcast, right? You have the wind and the waves and the plants and the fish and the people all obeying Yahweh. Jonah obeys Yahweh one time and then continues to go kind of recess or whatever, regress, and and he throws a fit. And he's unhappy. He's not happy with what God decided to do. That is his grace, his mercy, compassion, forgiveness, relenting from disaster. You know, the Exodus 34, 6 through 7 theme that goes on here in Jonah, Micah, and Nahum. But Jonah's in specific. Are we, at the end of Jonah 2.10, supposed to stop and ask ourselves, why is Jonah presented in such a negative light and everybody else is presented in a good light? The wind, the waves, the sailors, the fish. And then because we know where the story of Jonah goes, the Ninevites. Like, yes, okay, one, two, right? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. I understand how it starts out, but when you look at the macro view, it's quite interesting. Ninevites, the Ninevites end up being, quote-unquote, righteous. Now, we're not there at chapter 3 yet. I know we're focusing on 1 through 2 right now. But still, if we look at this, while Nineveh is presented as evil in 1-2, Jonah is presented as disobedient. Now, how would the ancient Israelites perceive Nineveh? Or how would they perceive the sailors. I think the obvious answer for those of you who are not sure 
is that the Ninevites were perceived as extremely negative. Depending on when this stuff was authored, uh, the Ninevites with Sennacherib went and tried to take over Hezekiah. Uh, but Hezekiah would not, you know, submit. And we have much archaeological evidence, quite interestingly, but we don't have the time to go through all that in this podcast. I mean, that is to say that the Ninevites actually existed, that the accounts in uh, Kings or Chronicles, whichever one it is, that all this stuff actually happened. It's in history. It's in archaeological history. The wars between Hezekiah and Sennacherib. But if this is written afterwards, presumably so, but I don't actually know, then we have a negative view of the Ninevites. And yet here we also have a negative, ironically, right? This is why some people question um, what type of literature this is besides prophetic, because all the Bible is prophetic. That is, it's God's word to us. But in addition to that, is this, you know, irony? Is that the genre here? Is this satire? Because Jonah is also, is that the right word? Possibly. Is that the right word? He is somehow, and in some way, in Jonah 1 through 2, presented as the bad guy. Or maybe, if you want a different word, as the not-so-good guy. Or maybe the not-perfectly-obedient guy. Or maybe he's presented as, hmm, how else can we say it? I think you get what I'm saying, right? We could, we could come up with all kinds of descriptions that I think we could more or less see each other's points when we're trying to describe Jonah from chapters 1 to 2 in some kind of way. But no matter what, we are not describing Jonah as obedient. At least in 1 through 2, correct? But who's obedient? Now, I know I said this already, right? But let me say it again, because this is what the author wants us to focus on. And don't think about just the human author here. The, the divine author wants us to focus on the obedience of everything but Jonah and the disobedience of Jonah. It's quite interesting. And I think, you know, because this is the end of a scene, right? And scene, like in a movie or in a play or whatever it is, right? You realize, oh man, fade to black after 210, and now we're meditating for just a moment on what just happened. And the ancient Israelite is going to be shocked because Jonah, like, who else is diso who else is a disobedient prophet? Okay, we have a couple of other disobedient prophets here. But uh, I think the first one we're going to think about is Jonah. At least that's probably pop culture, pop Christianity. That's what's going to come to our minds. But the ancient Israelite isn't expecting Nineveh to be presented as righteous obedient, or the sailors, and so on and so forth. I believe the purpose of what is going on here in Jonah 1 through 2 is to get us to have an upside-down worldview from what our religious system might be prescribing, from what our political systems might be pres prescribing. Because let's face it, you guys, this is not out of context when I say this, there was no, what we call separation of church and state, which is also misunderstood all the time. There was no separation between state and religion back then. Between the laws of the lands and the laws of the gods. There was no separation between these things. The king was seen as semi-divine, right? Caesar 
also called himself the Lord and the Son of God, or a Son of God. Egypt, Pharaoh, he's somehow and in some way a mediator, so on and so forth. Pharaoh was somehow divine in the eyes of uh, Egypt. And, and then you have Samuel and David, right? God's spirit is on them, and they're the kings administering Yahweh's law. So for me to stop for a moment and say that this author is asking us to consider changing our view to an upside-down worldview from what our political systems might be prescribing, I'm not out of context. The ancient Israelite would be like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying here? The ancient Israelite would not push back like a modern American. And I know we have a global audience, by the way, so I don't know how it is in Malaysia. We have, a, we have listeners in Malaysia. I don't know how it is in Ireland, even though it's a republic. You know, uh, whatever. I'm, I'm an American, <laughs> and uh, I only pay attention to certain things because this is my life. But the point is here that the modern person who believes in a separation of church and state in the way that people erroneously understand it, and it was originally uh, meant to make it to where we are to have the freedom to worship Yahweh, not according to the king of England, but still to be Catholic in our expression, not the king's Catholicism. This is just you know, the basic understanding that the state should not control Christianity but that we should be able to worship freely, worship Yahweh freely, specifically Yahweh freely. Now what we think, generally speaking, when we hear separation of church and state, is that they should not, you know, be in whatever. I was going to say, yeah, well, there's all kinds of ways you can describe it, but what how people understand it today is that we should not have the church make the laws, the church influence the laws, so on and so forth. But there's a separation. That the law should not be Christian because there's a separate, but that's not the point. And neither would the ancient audience ask itself to separate religion and deity from king and laws of the land. So indeed, the author is actually asking us to have an upside down worldview from what our religious systems might be prescribing from what our political systems might be prescribing. This is a contextual analysis. So, and that, this is part of how you study the Bible at learntostudythebible.org on Spotify, Apple, and learntostudythebible.org. Oh, we're also on Audible, by the way. So this is how you study the Bible. You don't just study the text. You, at a certain point, you back up and you understand the culture, what the ancients thought, what they did, how they worked, where they worked, so on and so forth. And so this is an actual legitimate consideration for us today. So with that being said, we have to ask ourselves, do we see the way, uh, do we see others the way the author sees the Ninevites and the sailors? Do we see others who are outside of the church? Let me just make it modern for a moment. Do we see others who are outside of the church the way the author of Jonah sees them in the book of Jonah? Do we see others the way that Jesus sees them? Paul once said, What 
do I have to do with judging those outside the church? We are to hold those in church accountable. This is, this is the spirit through Paul, not Paul making up his own thing. We aren't called to judge those outside of the church. We are called to love one another, love our neighbors as ourselves, and not to judge those outside of the church. And so I'm asking you, do we see those outside of the church the way the author of Jonah in the gospel of Jonah wants us to hear or look at them? Or do we see them however we want to see them, according to human eyes? Now, I, I go through this all the time, and you guys know this, but it's, it's something that I need, to drive this, I need to drive this point home quite often. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, and it's starting with all this, and I'm going to ignore everything else that came before that for just a moment. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Do you guys hear that? God was in Christ reconciling himself, reconciling us to himself. And then it says, continuing in 2 Corinthians 5.18, And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is to say that we are to be as he was to us. We are to be to others as he was to us in Christ. That is, verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors do not declare war, anger, anything like that. They proclaim peace. They keep the peace. They are wise with their words. They are wise with their body language. They are wise with their tone of voice. They are wise with how they live in public. They are wise with how they live in private. Or at least... This is what they should be doing. Now, I've never been an ambassador, but we understand the concept as a whole. We've seen movies, we've read about it, we've studied it, and we've seen the failings of others. And we've, we've been able to say confidently, right? Because we know everything, right? That's not a good ambassador right there. You need to be an ambassador in this way. And then we all say the same thing. You need to be rep a representative of X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. Well, here, it's not us being a representative in 2 Corinthians 5. It's actually God in us representing himself to the world. Now think about that. He's representing himself to the world in an attractive way, in a peaceful way, in a loving way. This is how he wants to represent himself, as an ambassador in a peaceful way. And this is what the author of Jonah in Jonah 1 through 2, is really getting us to think about. Jonah is a person who you think, oh, he's the prophet, especially especially if he's the prophet from uh, First or Second Kings, it's totally escaping my memory at this moment. But especially if he's that prophet, then they think, oh, this is the good guy. It's Jonah. Wait a second. What's Jonah doing? What? He's rising? He's fleeing? And now he's like getting swallowed up? This is not... Why would this happen to a prophet? unless they were disobedient. And wait a second. I thought Nineveh was supposed to be bad, but, but the more the story goes on, it's actually Jonah. Nineveh was mentioned once. That's evil was mentioned once in Act 1. But Jonah is consistently bad. And wait a second. The sailors are sacrificing to Yahweh? 
and making vows? You wait, How are we going to have the sailors making vows to Yahweh and Jonah the prophet trying to get out? This is written so that we might meditate on the upside-down view that is being presented to us. Jonah is sinking further and further and further. And guess what? The sailors are rising up with their prayers. You know, Matthew 9.37, uh, 9, Matthew 9.37, let me turn there. You guys know this well, but it says the harvest, this is Jesus speaking. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When we read this, when we listen to this, we think to ourselves that Jesus is saying, oh, pray to God that God would send out har uh, the laborers into his harvest. But then read chapter 10. And you find out that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. Jesus sends out laborers into his harvest. And then you read the end of Matthew, and you find out that Jesus sends everybody out. Actually, if you do a contextual analysis of, of uh, Matthew chapter 10, he, he equips them, so on and so forth. But in the end, you know, he talks like they're going to go do all these kind of things. But in the end, he actually, in the book of Matthew, he actually doesn't send them out to do anything until Matthew 28. And you guys know that, the Great Commission, right? Where it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. My point here is that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And Jesus, though, as the Lord of the harvest, finally, at the end of Matthew, after he's committed, uh, um, um, after he's resurrected and conquered all things, then he actually sends out his disciples. It's really interesting what the author of Matthew is doing and how the author of Matthew actually finally sends out the disciples. The other authors, they do it quite differently, where they actually go out and do something and come back. But the book of Matthew does not present it that way. This is very important for us to consider today. Because Jesus is saying to us that he wants to reconcile the world to himself through us. That is, God wants to reconcile the world to himself through us. We need to look at those outside the church quite differently as the author of Jonah is asking us to do. Something I've been telling my Bible study group quite often, and pretty much anybody who will listen, is that we're not fertilizing the soil. We're not tilling the ground with manual labor. We're not planting the seeds. We're not weeding the ground. We're not covering acres and acres with hay because of the frost that's about to come. And we're not tending to the plants to keep them free from the bugs that are going to destroy them. Jesus says he's sending us into a harvest. To put it another way, Jesus is saying there are people who are ready right now to give their lives to God. And Jonah 1 through 2 is an example of precisely that with the sailors, right? And even next week's episode where Jonah declares just a simple sentence in 3-4. Uh, no, yeah, 3-4, where he says, and yet are... Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. 
next week's episode, we're going to cover that. But in this week's episode, in Jonah 1 through 2, we find out at the end of this whole scene, right, that people are ready to obey God because God moves amongst them. Unfortunately, because of Jonah, but fortunately with them. Now, again, there's this, not again, but there's this big discussion in academia where people are arguing whether or not these guys actually, the sailors, end up serving Yahweh or if he's just now added to their pantheon, or what. All I'm going to say is that the text doesn't say what happens, other than them fearing the Lord, this is 116, fearing the Lord exceedingly, and offering a sacrifice to Yahweh, and making vows. Now I think the key to understanding where they go from there with the, is understanding what the making of the vows is. But the point of the author is kind of like the point of Matthew 9.37 where the harvest is plentiful. And in fact, the, the, the point of the author in all of Jonah appears to be suggesting such things. And so the first chapter is an example of how God is moving powerfully and causing people to hear and know him through all kinds of circumstances. It reminds me of Romans 1 where it says, Everybody knows Yahweh exists. And then you read chapter 10. Now, people, you know what, let me just turn there real quick. Romans 10 is quite interesting because so often, unfortunately, it is used for missions. People will say something like, oh, look, here it says in the Bible, it's right here. How then will they call on him in whom this is Romans 10, 14? Well, let's go back to 13. People will go to missions conferences, or they'll be in the church, or the pastor in the pulpit will say something like, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then they'll say, this is why we need to send missionaries wherever. Because they can't call on him if they haven't heard about his name. And then guess what they'll do? They'll read Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, they'll get, they'll get all this, you know, tearjerker stuff. And they'll start being, oh, listen, you guys, we have to send missionaries. And, and uh, listen, missionaries are good. Okay? They need to happen. But you're using the wrong text to talk about that stuff. If you, it, the problem is these pastors, these priests, these preachers, these, these street evangelists, these YouTubers, these podcasters, these everybody, you know what they do? They stop at the end of verse 15 that says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And they don't go down to verse 18. And because people aren't reading their Bible, they too don't go down to verse 18. And so they just sit there and they agree with the pastor, the priest, the YouTuber, the bishop, the deacon, uh, you know, whatever, the podcaster, everybody, the street preacher, the evangelist. They just sit there and they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we have to send missionaries because look at the Bible. It says, how are they to preach unless they are sent? And how are they to hear and believe in him on whom they've never heard and all this other stuff? Just read verse 18, you guys. Read the Bible. 10.18, Romans 10.18 says... But I ask, this is Paul asking rhetorically. He says in 1018, But I ask, have they not heard? 
Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Do you understand what Romans 10 is saying? Romans 10, 18, when it says, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Paul, Paul says, indeed, they, and contextually, you guys, this is, this is the Jews that he's talking about. And then when he talks about the Gentiles, he actually says, you know, it's in, in verse, verse 20. Uh, it's actually 19 as well. But the point here is that in 10, 17, and 18, Paul says, no, 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 no. After he gets done saying, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear unless without someone preaching? And all this other stuff. Paul, Paul, Paul contradicts. He doesn't contradict. He's arguing with the person who is uh, hypothetically arguing with him in this situation. And Paul says, no, guess what? They have heard. The Jews have heard. Because, and then he quotes Psalm 19, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And that harkens back to Romans uh, 1, 18 through 32, where Paul says, listen, everybody in the world knows Yahweh exists because what can be known about him is plain to him, is plain to them, namely their divine attributes and his divine attributes. You know what? Let me just read it. This is 119. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Once again, he's speaking about the Jews. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Here the scriptures say that every single person throughout all time, since the creation of the cosmos, is without excuse because we all know, because Yahweh himself has been speaking. It is Yahweh who is speaking through his creation, declaring his existence. And so that's why, through Isaiah, Paul talks, Paul quotes Isaiah in 1020, and he says, Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And then listen here. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. I bring this up to say that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And in Romans 1, and in Romans 10, and in Isaiah, and throughout the scriptures, since the beginning of the cosmos, everybody knows Yahweh exists. I go with what the scriptures say, not with what the people try to tell me. If you want to be an atheist, that's fine. You can identify as an atheist. But in today's society where men are trying to identify as women, and women are trying to identify as men, we know that's not the truth. And the scriptures in Romans contextually state, as well as in Isaiah, as well as in the Psalms, 
The scriptures state unequivocally that God has made his presence known to everybody since the beginning of the creation of the cosmos and that all are without excuse. And so I say to you, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. We are not tilling weeding, planting, fertilizing, uh, you know, uh, covering acres and acres, like I said, with hay to uh, because of the frost that's coming. And we're not tending to the plants and taking off the bugs and cleaning the leaves and all these other things that you have to do. We are harvesting the people who are ready to give their lives. And Jonah 1 through 2 is showing us that there are people who are ready Yahweh makes himself known. And all you have to do is go and declare God's word to them. But what word are we preaching? This is why I spoke to you guys previously. I can't remember what episode. But Jeremiah 23 is this perfect example where once again Yahweh is in, uh, Jeremiah is in the divine council. We talked about this however many episodes ago. And it's Jeremiah 23, 18. And, and so in this context, once again, Jeremiah is talking, or the Lord is talking about the prophets who have not stood in the divine council. And standing in the divine council is how you know it's a real prophet. This prophet has stood before Yahweh himself to hear his word. Everybody else who claims to have heard his word but hasn't stood in the council of the Lord is not a real prophet. Jeremiah 23, 18 says, For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word, or who has paid attention to his word and listened? And then verse 22. Now let's go to 21. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood, this is verse 22. Jeremiah 23, 22 if you study Jeremiah, if you read this in context, this will change your worldview on what you're supposed to be saying. Jeremiah 23, 22 says, But if they, the prophets, had stood in my council, the divine council, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. You guys, that's precisely what happens in Jonah. Is it not? I mean, let's just fast forward to next week's or um, the next episode, right? In 3-4, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then read verse 5. I'll just read a couple verses. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By, and this is what the, the proclamation is in verse 7. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 3.10 When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, guess what? I guess we got into chapter 3 this week, didn't we? 
But do you do you see the correlation between Jeremiah 23 and Jonah chapter 3? Jonah stood in the divine council. And you guys, do you remember the episode when he was supposedly sleeping in Jonah 1, 5 and 6? He wasn't actually sleeping. He was in the midst of the divine council hearing what he's supposed to say. And then in Jonah 3, 4, he just says God's word to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. God moves through what he has to say through us. This is why I brought up 2 Corinthians 5. It is God in us reconciling the world to himself. If we would just speak his words, if we would just stand in his divine counsel. Okay, we're not all prophets, and yet we are all prophets because we have the Spirit of God. That is to say that we are all, we are all prophesying when we declare God's word from his Bible. Only let it be the right word. There's a difference between speaking prophecy by declaring God's word and actually having the gift of prophecy. And so I'm speaking generally to all of us here when I'm saying that we can all prophesy through speaking God's word, whether or not we have the gift. And in some way, we can stand in the divine council, hear God's perfect word to people, and declare these things to them and have them turn from their evil ways like it says in Jeremiah 23 and like it says in Jonah chapter 3. The question is, do we understand what we are to be saying? Do we have the right words to bring about change? Peter in Acts, remember, spirit overcomes him. And then what happens? While he was still speaking with the house of Cornelius, the spirit falls on them. Do you remember that? Or what about Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost? He declares through the Spirit God's words. So God overcomes Peter and God speaks through Peter this the precise words that he wants the Jews from the diaspora to hear and then they all pledge allegiance to Jesus. They become baptized. It is God in us reconciling the world to himself. You guys don't know what to say to them unless to the people that are, you know, the harvest that's plentiful. We never know what to say unless we're listening to God, unless we're standing in his divine counsel. And part of the way we can know what to say and be confident with is by reading the scriptures is by learning to study the Bible. Because we can say something simple as, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Or we can say something as simple as, the Lord bless you. Or we can say something as simple as, whatever. It can be the most counterintuitive thing. As long as it's God's word. Now, okay, don't get buck wild with that and think I'm saying anything. God, you can say anything, you know, and we can start praising um, other entities. That's not what I'm saying here. I'm saying scripturally, you guys. But God is capable. Are we 
giving ourselves over to God to be used. God is capable, not us. It is God in us. So using the terms of Jonah, how do we view the sailors and the Ninevites of this world? Because remember, Nineveh is also in 1, 2, chapter 1, verse 2, and we're covering 1, 1 through 2, 10. Do we look at the sailors of this world and the Ninevites of this world as too far gone or without hope? Do we look at them as beneath God's grace, his mercy, compassion, his kindness, his forgiveness, his steadfast love? Do we, do we, do we look at them as not worthy of those things? Probably not. I mean, maybe every once in a while, let's be honest, right? Maybe every once in a while we hear some bad news and we, th- we, and we think some thoughts. We read news, abductions, murder, uh, stuff done to kids, and we have, these, we, we have these thoughts. We're human. But what do our actions demonstrate? Do our actions demonstrate that we view these people, people outside the church, the Ninevites, the sailors, the people on the street corner, the people at the punk rock show, the people... Uh, I don't know, at the skate park, right? I'm just talking about people from, from my context. The people under the bridge. The people you cross the other side of the street when you see them. Those people. Do we demonstrate with our actions? Let me ask it this way. What do we demonstrate with our actions? Are we demonstrating that they are worthy of God's love, grace, mercy, compassion, compassion kindness, forgiveness, relenting of di- uh, disaster? Or are we demonstrating with our actions that we do not love our neighbors as ourselves? Do our actions demonstrate that we're like Jonah and we're told to arise and go and then we arise and go somewhere else? Or are our actions like that of the sailors? Or the Ninevites, who, when told what to do, we do it. Now you can argue with me, well, the sailors didn't automatically do it. Sure, right? Okay, let's go ahead and read that. So Jonah tells them in one twelve, he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and let us not and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Whether they take a moment to respond, or they respond immediately. I'm asking you about us. I'm asking you to reflect on yourself. Are we, when the Lord tells us to arise and go speak his word, are we taking an upside down worldview that the author is asking us to have in Jonah 1 through 2 and looking at them as recipients of God's grace? Or are we like Jonah who says in verse uh, verse uh, 4-2, no, let's go four one. Listen to Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. That is right after they repented, right? And God relents. 
And he was angry, and he prayed to Yahweh and said, Oh, Yahweh, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Yahweh, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Is that how we respond? Or do we arise and go? Do you say to me, oh, well, well, God hasn't told me anything. God hasn't said to go get up. You guys, have you read Matthew? Did, do you remember what I said earlier? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all ethnicities. It says, Matthew 28, the Great Commission is for everybody. It is not dependent upon your spiritual gift. You do not need the teaching gift in order to go and make a disciple. Because as I said earlier, when Peter was still talking, the spirit falls on Cornelius and his family. And they, <laughs> and Peter's like, well, what can I do but baptize them? But Peter is doing it in the power of the spirit. And when Peter in Acts 2 is speaking to the diaspora Jews, diasporan Jews, whatever it is, the spirit falls on them, but Peter rises up in the power of the spirit. It is not us in ourselves, reconciling the world to God. It is God in us, reconciling the world to himself. So we must, when we are told to arise, which we already are, you guys, in Matthew 28, we're already called to go and make disciples. And that involves arising and going and doing the work. We must. That's why Jesus says, and lo, I'm with you, even into the end of the age. It's God with us. It's God in us. We need to get up and do the work. We need to have an upside-down worldview from what our religious systems, our political systems, our friends, you know, all these perspectives. We need to have the right view. And the right view in regard to Jonah, because we're studying Jonah right now, is to look at humans the same way that Yahweh looks at them. The author's asking us to stop looking at these people like Jonah looks at the plants, the plant that he had pity for. And God's like in 4.10, he said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? This is how the author wants us to begin to look at those outside of the church. Is this not the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is this not the gospel of Jonah? Is this not the good news that God is king of the cosmos and loves all people? Listen, I'm going to speak to a very select portion of you guys in this audience for a moment. So for those of whom it does not apply, it doesn't apply. But some of you love your dogs and your cats more than you love humans. Some of you will greet your dogs before you greet God's image bearers in your own home. Some of you, like Jonah in 4, 1 through 2, get exceedingly angry 
with Yahweh, when he tells you to go and make disciples of these people and declare his word, his word that he is a loving, kind, generous, merciful, relenting from disaster kind of God. Some of you want Yahweh to put his disaster on people. But I say to you in the name of Jesus that God wants to be merciful. God wants you to greet humans before your dogs. God wants you to love others as yourself. Not love dogs as yourself. And you can tell whether or not you love a dog more than a human by how you treat the dog rather than the human. I don't give a care about how the dog is always unconditionally kind to you. and stuff. Do, Were we unconditionally kind? Are we unconditionally kind? And yet we want the same respect. How about to Jesus? Were we unconditionally kind to Jesus? No. But what did Jesus do? So Jesus greets the humans. And you dog owners who are putting YouTube comments on there like, I love dogs so much more than humans, and all these other things, right? Like I'm speaking generally about a very, very select uh, amount of people in this world when it comes to the dog stuff. But there are other people who are angry that God isn't smiting the whomever, the Ninevites. God says to you, what do I have to do with those outside the church? Paul is talking through the Spirit, saying, we don't judge those outside the church. We think that certain people don't deserve his grace. And so we don't go to them. No, uh-uh, I'm not, I'm not telling them, look what they're doing. But Merry Christmas. Well, Merry Christmas. Jesus came for many reasons. You can find them all over the Bible. And I've said it on this podcast before, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to continue to beat this thing to death, metaphorically speaking. But hell wasn't created for humans. Hell was created for the devil and his angels. That's Matthew 25, 41. And if you back up, you find that the kingdom was prepared for humans. So now look at the cross in the light of the fact that hell was created for the devil and his angels. Now realize that Jesus wasn't murdered because people are dirty, rotten sinners. No, it says in Colossians 2 that one of the purposes of the cross was to disarm the powers and principalities in the heavenly places. Now I combined Ephesians in that last part, but it, that's the powers and principalities that Paul through the Spirit is speaking of. That's the purpose of the cross is to defeat and render powerless the spiritual rebels, the rebels in the spiritual realm. You're over here looking at the cross and then looking at these people who you think don't deserve God's grace and saying, yeah, that cross sure was for you because you're just this messed up piece of junk. But Jesus is over here saying, I'm going to disarm the powers and principalities of this world and make an, a way of escape for humans because I love humans and I will give my life for them. Now, Christ's death on the cross also impacted all kinds of other things, right? It restores the cosmos. His life fulfilled the law. Our belief in his resurrection is what resurrects us. On and on and on. But I'm saying to you, 
that Jesus came to save humans and we are all at peace with God. It doesn't just say that in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul says that. Hey, you know what? Let's turn to Acts 14. I've said this to you guys before. Here we go again. But we need we need to learn to study the Bible.org, right? Oh, I'm in Matthew. Acts 14, listen intently to what Paul says, please. This is Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas. And they're like, oh, the gods have come down to us in the, in the form of men, blah, 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 because Paul and Barnabas did some healings, right? And then Acts 15, um, let's go to Acts 16. Sorry, Acts 14, 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. Oh my goodness, guys, this sounds just like Romans 10. Yet he did not leave himself without witness in Romans 1, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven. Do you understand here that Paul is saying that the rains from heaven were witness of Yahweh? And fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Now let me back up. Paul says in 14:16 that he allowed them all to walk in their own ways. And then verse 17 Paul says that while they were walking in their own ways, God satisfied their hearts with food and gladness. I spoke last last uh, podcast about Ecclesiastes and how God wants us to enjoy our power, our possessions and um, something else that I can't remember at this moment. And here we have the same thing because there's continuity in all of this. Acts 14, 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he sent them rains and fruitful seasons and satisfied their hearts with food and gladness while they did whatever they wanted to do. He is merciful, kind, relenting from disaster, on and on and on. Indeed, Merry Christmas. Christ came to spare us from the judgment of the devil and his angels. That's what hell was created for. And we need to take on this, this upside-down view of the recipient of God's grace. This is what Jonah 1 through 2 is telling us to do. And God, outside of the book of Jonah, is commanding us to go and make disciples of all people in this world, every kind of person. Remember what the scriptures say? And remember that Jesus said it? He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The author of Jonah, which is the Holy Spirit, the author, God, wants us to go and tell the world of a gracious God, one who is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And if any one of you are saying, I get it, move on already, tell me you get it after you've gone out and told the, the world today, today, about a God who is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And then come back and email me at info at learn to study the Bible.org and tell me what your response was or what, what, what their response was. And in case you think, no, 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 we're supposed to go tell them about Jesus. Read Acts and read Paul in 13 through 17. Acts 13 through 17. Read Paul and how he speaks to the Gentiles. And then ask yourself whether or not you're standing in the divine council 
and getting saying the words that Paul is saying and getting the results that Paul is getting. I had to ask myself that back in, I don't know, 2010-ish or 8-ish. I, I talked about this, I think it was last week or something like that. I can't remember. The point is that when I began to declare Paul's message to the Gentiles, Paul's message to the unchurched, I began to get, without the persecutions, praise God, I began to get the results of Paul. And now I'm at the point where people don't, you know, people, how they respond to me is, tell me more, or how do I follow Jesus? I'm talking about when I talk to non-Christians about Jesus. They, when I talk to them about God, rather, they respond with, tell me more, or how do I follow this God of yours? And they'll use the word Jesus because they know I'm a Christian. It's, it's you know, 2023, and people have heard about Jesus and all these other, other things. So I'm asking you. God, rather, is asking you. God is commanding you, really, to go and tell the world of this. Now, we're done studying Jonah. But before I get to my next section, I must take a sip of my tea because it's cold. Tonight's tea is de <laughs> decaffeinated tea, also known as chai. I have a couple Indian friends, and they're all jealous that I have more than one because they want to be the only Indian friend that I have. But uh, <laughs> they, uh, uh, one of them tells me quite often, chai just means tea. And so when you say chai tea, you're saying tea tea. So let's get it straight, people. Okay, so... Now that we've studied Jonah 1 through 2, I, I, I've, I've been speaking to this point, right? I'm asking you guys to help me tell others about this same God, but help me tell it globally. Help me tell the people around the globe. If I had a million dollars, you know what I would do? I, it'd probably take a little bit more, but let's just go with a million for a moment. I would build a global satellite communication system that is uncontrolled by any government in the world, and I would use the digital airwaves to declare the good news of God around the world in closed countries, in countries where persecution is happening, but the reception of the gospel is also happening. If I had a million dollars, I would build a global satellite system that was uncontrolled by any government, and it enabled the persecuted church to bypass the app store and the controlled internet to download Christian materials that equip them for good works. In case you're not familiar, I need you guys to understand that China has done this. China has shut down their app store and they have blocked all online access to Christian websites. They've shut down, um, when I say they shut down the app store, what they've done is they've removed every single Christian thing that you can find on the app store. Christianity is growing in China and in Africa like crazy. It's growing all around the world but dying in the USA or so it appears as far as the dying is concerned. And we don't have enough time. We can do it better. We don't have enough Bibles in China and, in, and all these other closed or controlled or covert operation countries that we're in. We can do this better by, by, by bypassing this stuff. If we had a satellite communication system, we could get a direct link to the phones and let them get what information they need because it's uncontrolled. It's not controlled by the Chinese government. It's not controlled by Afghanistan and Iran and, 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 and being tracked and worried about all these other things. 
You guys have to understand that right now in China, people are staying up all night. We have secret people, secret missionaries going over covertly to teach the Chinese church and, and the persecuted church as a whole. And you know what they do? This over an hour long per episode podcast that I do is not enough. The people who go secretly to China ask the people who come over for a short amount of time to teach all day, every day. They don't have enough Bibles to go around. Do you understand what I'm saying? They don't have enough Bibles for everybody. So the secret teachers who come over, they teach all day long. In the Chinese church, they sit there on the floor in a, in a hidden place, ultra secretive, and they just listen and learn all day. We don't have enough people in this, in this world who are willing to give up their lives to go do these things. But we have enough money to send uncensored teachings through a global satellite communication system, not only to China, but also to the rest of the world. Listen, there are a whole bunch of countries that are closed off countries that you have to work covertly in. I'm going to list a few of them. And then I'm going to list after that the ones that are are not covert, but, are, but the Bible's illegal, and so on and so forth. And if I get a couple wrong, I get a couple wrong, but that's not the point. Afghanistan, Iran, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, the Maldives only have three churches, from what I can find. This next one is hard. It's uh, Mauritania, North Korea, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Yemen. Those are countries where we have to work covertly, secretly. We have to smuggle in Bibles at the risk of lives when we could be sending digitally all the information they need, the training they need. They can bypass the internet uh, that's, that's being controlled by them, and we can, we, can, we can send it to their phones directly. These people have smartphones. The poor people in Nepal, the actually impoverished people in Nepal, have smartphones. And then you go to Algeria, Bhutan, Brunei, China, Cuba, Djibouti, uh, Eritrea, Kuwait, Laos, Libya, Malaysia, Morocco. And Malaysia has churches. But these are still Islamic countries. Morocco, Oman, Sudan, and Tunisia. Tunisia also has churches. It has uh, St. George Anglican Church, in fact, in uh, Tunisia. And Tunis. However, these Muslim countries make it illegal to make converts and to distribute materials. And the fact is, you have to get the materials into these closed countries at the risk of lives, of which Christians are called to die for the name, we understand that, and, and to be persecuted and suffer. I understand that. But there are better ways to do this. And if this audience would help me build a global satellite communication system by 2030 we can proclaim the apostolic catholic faith uncensored you have to you have to understand that people in china can't listen to this podcast but they speak english and they are always wanting people to risk their lives in order to come over and teach them the bible people literally have to do this covertly they can't access what you get to sit comfortably in your home or your car or whatever you're doing. And, and me in my home and listening to whatever in my car, we're comfortable. 
They're not. They don't have access to teaching. All they have is what's being smuggled in. They don't have enough information smuggled into them. And they can't get online and get access to this stuff. So they have to memorize the Bible, which is great that they memorize the Bible. But we, if we combine our money, because we don't have enough people to do this, we can change all of these things. I have a bank account opening for this, uh, this uh, 501c3 nonprofit uh, that is learntostudythebible.org. We can fund this vision. We can get teachings to the persecuted church in closed countries. Secret. We don't have to send people over secretly. Even though we should and we still will, we can multiply exponentially the amount of information. And so just as the author of Jonah is asking us to have an upside-down worldview, I'm asking, and, and to go and proclaim the message of a merciful God, I'm asking you guys to help me proclaim this message in closed countries through modern technology, through building a global satellite communication system to proclaim the apostolic and Catholic faith uncensored. They can't even listen to this podcast, but they speak English, and they would if they had the opportunity. Like I said, I'll have a bank account opened next month. This is a registered 501c3 nonprofit registered with the IRS, which means all of the information, all the, all the money that you give will be tax deductible. But what's more, more importantly, let me just turn to this real quick. As a reminder from the Lord in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I'll get there eventually. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They, the rich, are to do good and to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I'm asking you who are rich to donate generously. If you want to donate to the work that we are doing here, to building a global communication system to declare the apostolic Catholic faith around the world uncensored. Then you can do that next month. And for now, you can email me at info at learntostudythebible.org and I'll let you know when the account is open. We have enough money. I have a global audience right now. I have a global audience. And if we put the money together, we can proclaim this gracious and merciful God to all people around the world. We can equip the church and the church that is equipped by this podcast can go out and teach more and more people and make more and more disciples. That's all I have today. Thank you for listening. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.